and it prepares the world. And when this message is shared with the world, we are told that the Lord will accompany the message with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I hope we're listening. Because that's the message that's going to go to all the world as the loud cry. And what makes it loud is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. And, uh, and as this message is going out, trouble will come upon the world. And then Jesus will come. I want to share with you, and I, I say this with, a, with an honest heart, I have studied this message for years. And this pastor is fully persuaded that this is the generation that's going to see the second coming. We are on the borders of the heavenly Canaan. We're almost home. It is important to us to be paying attention to the message God gave to us of how God saves a sinner. The message of righteous by faith is the power of God to save and transform a sinner like you and me. Now, in my last presentation, I encourage you to purchase four books. I hope you have, you have gone after that and, um, and have begun the process of studying them, the first one being Christ Our Righteousness by A.G. Daniels. Uh, if you don't have that, then fill out that little piece of paper that shows your email, and we'll try to email that to you. There's a little incentive. Otherwise, you can ask uh, the secretary or myself afterwards if we can get that for you. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, we're going to look at the judgment. We're going to look at all three phases of the judgment today, and we're going to just briefly look at one and two phases, one and two, and then we're going to lock in on three. And uh, the judgment is something that really has interested me because I believe that the judgment reveals the character of God. And it, it really began for me one day as I was, a, I was a group of my colleagues were talking about how the judgment operates. And, uh, and I, was, I was overhearing. And the moment I heard judgment, you know, I just started leaning over. I wanted to hear how they were explaining the process. And when they were done, I stepped over to them and I said, if what you have said is true, then Lucifer was right. And God is a manipulator and a controller. I refuse to believe that what you have just said is the way that the judgment operates. And so I went back, and I didn't mean that as a rebuke, but I, I meant that as we better get this thing straight because people are believing what we're telling them. And so I went back and I, I studied everything the Bible had to say about the judgment and everything that God revealed about the judgment through the writings of Ellen White. And, uh, and I sat down, and as I read it all, I was blown away by two things. The transparency of God. God makes himself vulnerable. You know, when the Bible says the hour of his judgment has come, there's a dual meaning in that. Number one, he is the presiding judge, so it's his judgment. But it's also his judgment because he is being judged. Because of the accusations that Lucifer levied against God, the judgment not only clears and vindicates the people of God, it clears and vindicates him too. And so, 
So, so what I'd like to do is begin with a word of prayer, and then as a church family, we're going we're gonna to look at this. We're going to flesh this thing out. So as far as possible, I feel the need for us to kneel once more. Most kind and gracious God, merciful, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and pity, tenderness for sinners like us. We thank you so much, dear Lord, for sending your Son, for allowing him, Lord, to risk everything to save us. We thank you. And Lord, we ask for that blood to wash away our sin, the precious blood of your dear Son. We pray, Lord, also for his righteousness to cover us. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, we are asking. The Bible says ask, and we are asking. You have promised to send, and Lord, you have said your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish the thing for which you have sent it. Father in heaven, we pray that you will enter into this room and that you will communicate to us through the Holy Spirit your mind. Be with the speaker, that he will not interfere between you and your people, but that they each will recognize and hear what they need to hear. Now, Father, you know that I can inadvertently say something that will come across wrong. You know that I can inadvertently say something and not complete a thought and leave it incorrect. So I am pleading with you that you will smooth the way and that you will give to us now understanding. We thank you. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, everyone should have, or at least every couple should have a handout. Is there anyone that does not? I have an extra one here. There's a hand over here. Um, could you get this over here to Miss? Oh, you got one. You got one. Okay, good. Does, does anyone else need one? Okay, so you can make notes on it, and you can go home and check up on the preacher to make sure that he is giving you the truth. Uh, don't trust your soul to any man. Um, so what I'd like to do, on the very, in the little box on the top, I'm going to give you just a quick overview, a snapshot of the judgment, and then uh, we'll go into it and flesh it out in detail. Uh, thank you, Wayne, so much. If, if you don't, if you need a handout, raise your hand. Okay, there's some hands here. Okay, good. And we got Miss Cindy over here needs one too. Anyone else? We got a hand in the back also. Okay, raise it nice and high. If you need one, we've got them. All right. And so, um, so what we, where we have learned so far in the series is that the judgment is divided into three parts. And we'll see them there, phase one, two, and three. One judgment, three parts, three phases. The first is the investigative judgment. And who are judged in the investigative judgment? We have learned that it is those who profess to be Christians, those who uh, have made a profession that Christ is their Savior. That's the group that's judged first. And uh, who are the main participants in uh, the investigative judgment, it's Jesus and the family of heaven are the main participants. And, uh, and then what will be the ultimate result is that God is vindicated before the heavenly family. 
So God is going to reveal who is going to be coming to heaven and who is not, and he'll be vindicated there. In the second phase, which is the sentencing stage, uh, this will be taking place during the thousand years, which we refer to, or the Bible refers to, or we refer to as the millennium. Uh, who is judged in this part? We're going to discover it is the lost that are judged here. Who are the main participants? It's going to be Jesus and the saved. The saved now are in heaven, and they are part of this judgment. And then we're going to find that in the end, that God is actually vindicated before the saved. And then the final phase, the executive phase of the judgment, uh, when the, the sentences are, are dished out, who are judged? We're going to find it's the lost again. Who are the main participants? This time it's Jesus and the lost. Interesting. And God will be vindicated before the lost. So with that, let's begin with number one, the first phase of the judgment. And this takes place after the first coming of Christ. It couldn't have taken place before. It takes place after. Uh, and Daniel 8.14 tells us when it begins. And he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? Cleanse. This is the beginning of the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment in Heaven. And uh, Bible students of prophecy know that that began on October 22, 1844. We, that we are now living uh, at the continuation of the judgment. And brothers and sisters, the judgment is drawing to a close. Who is judged? 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. We studied and fleshed this out, didn't we? Who are the participants? Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14 tells us, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fire stream issued and came from forth before him. A thousand thousand ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. I watched in the night vision, and one like the son of... Man came, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they were brought him near before him. This is the imagery, the picture of the investigative judgment in heaven. And the participants are the angelic hosts. Now, I want to share some things with you that in my study I thought was very interesting. Um, were you aware that only one question is asked in the judgment? There's only one question asked. Gospel Workers, page 315. The only question asked in the judgment will be, have they been obedient to my commandments? That's the only question asked. We have to remember that the law of God is broad. They represent ten principles that, that, uh, that touch upon every aspect of our human life. What do you mean, Pastor? In other words, if I eat in a way that I shorten my life, that comes under thou shalt not kill. Are, are you with me? So there are 10 principles that, uh, that, that, that touch every aspect of our lives. Jesus came to reveal to us what the law looks like when it's written on the heart. Jesus is the living expression of full compliance with God's law. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, we have to understand something here very important is that the law is love. 
The law is love. The law is actually a reflection of the one who wrote the law. God is love. His law is love. Now, I don't think, I don't think we've spent enough time really squeezing this idea of God being love. So let me do a little squeezing for you. What does that mean? That means that God is incapable of doing anything that is not motivated by love. God has limits. God is incapable of doing anything that is not motivated by love. Why? Because it is inconceivable for love to do anything else. You see, God doesn't have love. God is it. He is the personification. He is the source of love. Without God, there is no love. There's no anything. God does not have love. He is love. So His law, every command of God is an appeal to come into harmony with love. Because the law of God is love. Does this make sense? That's the only question asked. We have to remember that in the note below that, that humanity can only keep God's law through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't do it in your own strength, brothers and sisters. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We need a source outside of us to transform our lives, and God has promised to do it if we will believe Him and yield our lives to Him. In the end, obedience is an expression of trust, gratitude, and love. In the end, obedience is an expression of trust, gratitude, and love. And it's a work that God does in the heart of a sinner. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 55. In the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believe the lie, but because they did not believe the truth. Because they neglected the opportunity of learning what is truth. You know, this is a real powerful statement. You know, there's going to be a whopping orientation meeting in, the, in heaven for all the Sunday keepers that got there and didn't know about the Seventh-day Sabbath. They didn't reject the Sabbath. They didn't know about it. Are you with me? So people aren't going to be lost for believing a lie, honestly. They're going to be lost because when God revealed to them the truth, they rejected it. You know, truth is more than a concept. It's a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so every teaching of Scripture, which that's another word for doctrine, is teaching, is actually a revelation of Christ. It's an invitation to know Him better and as a result to reveal Him more fully in our lives. And so people in the end will be lost because they rejected the invitation, they rejected truth, or because they said, maybe I shouldn't study this because I'll be held responsible for it. We chuckle. We've all been there, haven't we? But who wouldn't want to accept the invitation to know Jesus better? Right? 
Great Controversy 480. In the typical service, only those who had come before God with confession and repentance and whose sins through the blood of the sin offering were transferred to the sanctuary had a part in the service of the Day of Atonement. So in the great day of the final atonement and investigative judgment, the only cases considered are those of the professed people of God. The judgment of the wicked is a distinct and separate work and takes place at a later period. So what will be the result? Daniel 7:18 says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Revelation 22, 11 and 12 says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let it, he is filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according to his work, whatever that shall be. Now, I already fleshed that one out in my last message. But obviously, that represents the close of probation for the world in Christ's returns. Now, look at the note at the very top of the next page. It says, in the investigative judgment, it is revealed through the books who has truly accepted Christ and are safe to save. Now, are safe to save, right? Rebellion began in heaven. Do you think that the people in heaven want sin to enter there again? No, any more than we want sin to enter here again. So the people in heaven had a vested interest, and who goes there? So they're involved. And so the books are open, and Jesus reveals to the books the choices that you and I are making, and he is revealing. Remember, it's the books that determine who's saved and lost, not Jesus. Jesus validates and confirms the choices you and I have made, and he reveals them to the universe. And then at the end, he shows why these aren't going to be coming and why these are. And then he asks the universe the question. Any questions? Jesus will, the, the, nobody, the, the, the process will not continue until every question is answered and everybody is satisfied in their minds. Does that make sense? So let's continue with that sentence. The family of heaven are satisfied. It is now safe to proceed to phase two. So the Lord looks at everyone, and the angels, and he says... Are you satisfied? Are there any questions? And the angels go, no. makes sense. I mean, that was, they made the choices. We see it. Makes sense, Lord. No. We're good. Then he says, okay, let's mount up and let's bring them home. So now we go to phase two of the judgment, and that takes place after the second coming. When does it take place? Revelation 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years is the millennium. So who is judged? Okay, the saints now are involved in the process because they're there. And who, who is being judged? The Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge who? The world. But the next one's interesting. 1 Corinthians 6.3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Do you realize that by the time the process is done, we will know the names of every one of those angels. We will know them intimately. We will know what their lives were like prior to the fall, how happy they were, and what their lives were like after. We will know that of not only the angelic host, but every member of the human family. Who participates? Revelation 20, verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. 
in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither has received the mark upon his foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ how long? thousand years. Uh, this quote in Review and Herald, 1850, there's actually, I was actually able to find only five quotes like this, not exactly the same, but the idea is very similar, and it gives us a picture of this, of this process. After the saints are changed to immortality and are caught up together and receive their harps, crowns, and etc., and enter the holy city, Jesus and the saints set in judgment. The books are open, the book of life and the book of death, which is the book of iniquity. The book of life contains the good deeds of the saints, and the book of death contains the evil deeds of the wicked. These books are compared with the statute book, the Bible, and according to that, they were judged. The saints, in unison with Jesus, passed their judgment upon the wicked dead. Behold ye, said the angel, the saints sit in judgment in unison with Jesus, and met out... Uh, each of the wicked according to the deeds done in the body. And it is set off against their names what they must receive at the execution of the judgment. This I saw was the work of the saints with Jesus in the holy city before it descends to the earth. And so Jesus um, and uh, the saints then are, uh, are working together during this time period. And, and this is really interesting because what's happening here is really the auditing. Uh, part of what's happening here is the auditing of the investigative judgment. We weren't there for that. Okay, so we're auditing those books. So, so we'll be arriving in the New Jerusalem, and then, peop- and then people will say things like, oh, it's so beautiful here, and look around and go, hey, why, why, why isn't Pastor so-and-so here? They were, they were such, they, they seem to be such godly, a godly person, and and, and, you know, they, they, they preach such beautiful messages. I don't understand. I thought that was a given. Why aren't they here? And the angel then opens the book and says, come, let me show you what was happening behind the scenes when no one was watching. And I want you to take special notice at how Jesus tried to reach this dear soul and how they rejected time and again. That is why they're not here. Are you with me? And then, then we'll also have those instances where we'll go, oh, well, I understand it. Oh, wait, that's my neighbor. <laughs> there's, been a, there's been a mistake. <laughs> this brother has no business being here. And then the angel will say, come, let me show you. And the angel opens the books and shows the circumstances that surrounded the life of that dear soul, the home that they grew up in. And, and all their struggles and how they gave their life to Christ. But they started so far down the, the pole in character development, but they began to grow in Jesus. But they had such a rough and gruff exterior. And of course, in the course of life, they died before God was completely com- finished with him. But he yielded his life all along the way. So it is shown that God really was ruling on the throne of his heart and, uh, and that he is safe to save. And so then we'll go, oh, I see now. I understand. Are you with me? But the big question is, why do we have a right? Somebody will ask, why, why, do, why does humanity, I can see why Jesus, Jesus entered into our experience. Uh, he lived a victorious life through the power of his Father. So, but why do humans then get to be part of the judgment with Jesus? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of wild. Well, let's read the note and let's answer that. 
Someone might ask the question, what gives the saints the right to sit in unison with Jesus in the second phase of the judgment? The answer has to do with these facts. Because like Jesus, the saints were tempted like as those who are being judged, because the saints have experienced victory over the same sins that controlled those who are lost, because the saints have by faith walked in Jesus' footsteps, and in spite of the painful struggle against self, they have through faith and the power of the grace of God, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work, habitually remain in the process of developing Christ's character of love in their lives. And so, after being translated and given God's understanding about each individual case of the lost, they have the experiential right to participate in unison with Jesus in the judgment. Does this make sense? So then what is the result? Jude 14 and 15 says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And now look at the note. During the sentencing stage, the saved will audit the, uh, the activities in the investigative judgment and examine the books to understand the level of punishment required in each case of the wicked. The saved are what? Satisfied. It is now safe to proceed to phase three. Now, before we go there, I want to touch on something here. Remember in the investigative judgment, who is it that decides who saved and lost? We do. The only thing Jesus does is he validates and confirms our choice. We determine whether we're saved or lost by the choices we make. But it works the same way in the, in the, in the, in the punishment phase. We determine, the lost determine the punishment. Jesus and the... And the and the saved validate and confirm the choices they made. Remember the golden rule, do unto others? That's how the judgment operates. Jesus says, the measure you meet against others will what? You will be met against you. When Nathan, when Nathan uh, in, his, in his very uh, in, uh, uh, captivating story entrapped David, and exposed his sin. Remember David stood up and said, this man will pay for it fourfold. The judgment came from his mouth. How many children did he lose? Four. Are you with me? So in the judgment, Jesus and the saints will look over the books to see what punishment the lost chose for themselves. And they have no choice but to validate and confirm it. And Jesus then asked the question, are there any questions? And the saints go, Lord, it's all there. All our questions are satisfied. We're satisfied now. Jesus says, okay, let's go back now and let's complete this. So we're looking at really, it's something we don't talk about as Adventists very much, but we're actually talking about a third coming. Revelation 14, 15 shows it, uh, tells us about that third coming, and I just read that, excuse, excuse me, Jude, Jude 14, 15. And so let's take a look at phase three of the judgment, and this takes place after the third coming at the end of the thousand years. 
take place when? Revelation 12, 5 says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until when? And thousand years were finished. Who is judged? Revelation 20, verse uh, 11 through 13 says, and I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. So who participates? Revelation 20, 11 and 12 says, and I saw a great white throne, and I saw the the dead, small, great, stand before God, and the books were open. This is really a unique moment in the history of our world because for the first and the last time, the entire human family will be alive at the same time. For the first and last time. And we know what happens. The Bible tells us that uh, the wicked... Uh, prepared to launch an attack against the, the, the New Jerusalem, uh, showing that, you know, even through death that their characters have not changed. And, uh, and just, a, just when they're about to launch their attack, Jesus appears over the New Jerusalem. And, and I don't know how, how to describe it, but it's like a movie. The whole history of the world will be presented before the whole human family. Uh, in, in great controversy, it's described as the panoramic view. Are you aware that you and I will witness the creation of this world the first time? We will witness the fall of Adam and Eve. We will witness the first murder, Cain and Abel. We are going to witness the flood. We are going to witness the ministry of Jesus, his birth. We're going to hear every sermon. We're going to watch the trial. We're going to watch him crucified. We will watch the roles that each of us played in the great controversy. I want to share something right here with you. Let me tell you what you're not going to see. You're not going to see my sinful past. Because when I asked Jesus to forgive me, his blood washed it away. And you're not going to, well, you're not going to see it. You won't see it. What will be the result? Philippians 2, 10, 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. In other words, everyone. The universe, everyone. And that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 20, 11, some of the saddest words in Scripture, and there was found no place for them. And then Revelation 29, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Revelation 20, 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what I want to do right here is push pause. Let's rewind. Let's take a look, a closer look, at those closing moments and see what we can learn. What lessons can we take from the end? Great Controversy 668. It is now evident to how many? To all. That the wages of sin is not noble independence and eternal life, but slavery, ruin, and death. Let me pause right here. 
there are, there are some young people here. The devil is going to tempt you that going against God's ways is going to make you happy. He's going to tempt you that God is the big killjoy in the sky and he's in it to take away your joy. It's a lie. What the devil is offering you is a mirage. But in the end, everyone's going to recognize something important and that was that what God had offered was good. It is evident to all that the wages of sin is not noble independence and eternal life, but slavery, ruin, and death. The wicked, that's, a, that's critical. They see, they recognize what, what's the next word? They have forfeited by their life of rebellion. The far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory was despised when offered them. But how desirable it now appears. I find this very interesting because we're talking about the wicked. Their probation is closed. They have fully developed the character of Satan, of selfishness. It's all about me. Okay? And in that state, when seeing now what, this, what the saints have uh, inherited, how desirable it now appears to them. That tells us that sin blinds. If the things of God look unattractive to you, know that you're deceived. <laughs> it, it's okay, just recognize it and plow through it. Give your life to Jesus Christ and get into his word. And it'll suddenly become more and more attractive to you. And by the way, that was true for all of us. We've all been there at some point. But how desirable it now appears. Now what we're going to get is their words. This is amazing. All this cries the lost. I might have had, but I chose to put these things far from me. Oh, strange infatuation. In other words, what was I thinking? I have changed peace, happiness, and honor for wretchedness, infamy, and despair. You know, it's interesting to me as I, as I read this and as I studied this, as I tried to glean everything I can find, that inspiration that God has given to us in these closing moments, I want to share with you what I did not find. I did not find the wicked say, oh, that's what heaven's like? It's nice, but I enjoyed my season in the sun. It was worth it. Nobody says that, not even the devil. Instead, they say, what was I thinking? I could have had that. I could have had it. I continue. All, what's the next word? See. They refuse to see, but now they see. Dear friend, if you have not given your life to Jesus and you don't care to see, please know at some point you will see. Amen. You're going to see. If you see now, it will benefit you. If you see then, it will be too late. Now, today is the day of salvation. Today is. God is not a big killjoy in the sky. 
All he says, he's very reasonable. He says, taste and see. You risk nothing by tasting and see. All see that their exclusion from heaven is what? Just. By their lives, they have declared, we will not have this man, Jesus, to reign over us. Now they see, but it's too late. You know, it's very interesting. When I was living in, uh, growing up in Southern California, even though I wasn't serving the Lord, for some reason, church marquees would get my attention. You know, there are people out there that read marquees. Now, I must say that most of them aren't worth reading. There was one church, however, it was on the corner of Figueroa and Eagle Rock in Highland Park, and whoever was in charge of the marquee recognized they had a ministry. And I can, I can rattle off to you, I'm 55, this was, I, was, I was 17, 18 years old, and I can still remember the stuff that was put up there. The Holy Spirit really just etched in my mind. And one of the ones that, that is very applicable here that I read said this. It was the definition of hell. It said, hell is truth seen too late. And that's what these people are going through. Now they see. Signs of the Times, 1880. 1890, excuse me. Sin is a mysterious, unexplainable thing. You ever thought you'd read that? <laughs> Sin is a mysterious, unexplainable thing. There was no reason for its existence. To seek to explain it is to seek to give a reason for it, and that would be to justify it. Sin appeared in a perfect universe, a thing uh, that was shown to be inexcusable and exceedingly sinful. The reason of its inception or development was never explained, nor can be. Why? Because there is no reason to rebel against love. It's illogical. Why would you want to fight against love? That makes no sense. Even at the last great day when the judgment shall sit and the books be opened, when every man shall be judged according to the deeds done in the body, when the sins of God's uh, repentant, sanctified people shall be heaped upon the scapegoat, the originer, originator of sin, at that day it will be evident to how many? That there is not and never was any cause for sin. By the way, that includes the devil and the fallen angels. At the final condemnation of Satan and his angels and of all the men who have finally identified themselves with him as transgressors of God's law, every mouth will be stopped. When the hosts of rebellion from the first great rebel to the last transgressor are asked why they have broken the law of God, they will be speechless. There will be no answer to give no reason to assign that will carry the least weight. You know, as a pastor, I often run into people that have lots of excuses, both in the church and out of the church, for breaking God's will. But on the day we stand before the judgment bar of God, no one is going to share any of those excuses because in the face of the evidence, there is no excuse. Are you with me? 
Review and Herald, 1850. The wicked then receive according to the saints in unison with Jesus had meted out to them during the thousand years. And so the fire comes down and destroys them. Desire of Ages, 764, says this. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejecters of, of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God, now watch the line of reasoning here. You've got to get this. God is the fountain of life, okay? Pause right there. He is the source of life. So if you separate yourself from the source, what do you end up with? God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God. Christ says, all they that hate me love death. God gives them existence now. So, th so now, so wait a second, pastor, so why do we have life now? That's a good question. The next sentence answers it. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choices. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. Now look at the last sentence. The glory of him who is love Will destroy them. You know, my friends, now you know why Jesus had to come to take our place. There was no other way to save us. Not only does he offer us his righteousness in place of our unrighteous past, his righteous past, but then he gives us his righteousness to live a righteous life. As we make the choice to yield, it gives him the right to change us. As we make the, as we make the choice to obey, he gives us the power to do it. All praises to him. To him. I can't change me. I don't have the desire to change me. God has to work in me both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So the big question is going to be asked, Pastor Baute, surely if we took the wicked, the lost to heaven, they would be happy there. Great Controversy 542. Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love. Every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music in melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and, this, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sitteth upon the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth, of holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. Now, this next sentence is very important. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now 
it is too late. Now, this is very significant because what this text is telling us, or this, that, that one sentence, is that all of us are training our minds to love purity or to hate it. How so, Pastor? At least two ways. One is in our response to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit moves upon my heart to do or not to do something, and I say no to Him, I am training my mind to reject that voice. And when, I, and when my mind is fully trained to do that, what do we call that? The unpardonable sin. And we close our own probation. Training the mind. Another way is by what we feed our minds. If I feed my mind the movies of the world, the music of the world, the literature of this world in all its filth, I am training my mind to hate purity. I am destroying myself. Brothers and sisters, are we destroying ourselves with the movies we watch? We got to remember that what the world calls entertainment, God calls an abomination. God is not entertained by sexual immorality. God is not entertained by murder. God is not entertained by lying or stealing. Are you with me? And when we feed our mind that, our mind grows accustomed to it, and we're preparing to destroy ourselves. We have a choice in this. It would be better to spend time in God's Word. It would be better in studying the life of Jesus. Are you with me? And to surround ourselves with the music that we're going to hear in heaven. And we need to study. I'm going to pause right here. Music is a larger issue in the great controversy than we think it is. This idea that it's just the lyrics is fantasy. Anybody, you go to a secular person and you, who's involved in marketing and you tell them the music doesn't affect the person, it's only the words, and they're going to laugh you out of the building. The music sends a message that overrides the words. Remember who was in charge of music in heaven? Who do you think knows music better than anyone other than God? We better be sure that we're listening to the music, not just the lyrics, but the music that we're going to be hearing up there. And if you don't know what that is, study and pray. The Lord, and we'll, at some point, we'll, we can hit it. In fact, if you're really interested, I can refer you to a Baptist. Get your pencil and paper ready. His name is Frank Garlock. Why are you telling us to listen to a Baptist? Because if I give you an Adventist, you're going to say, oh, because of the spirit of prophecy. Pull that on the Baptist. <laughs> His presentation is called Pop Goes the Music. It's a three-part series. And, uh, and he will give you excellent Excellent. If you're like me, I'm not, I'm not a musical person. It, I had to watch it like two, three times before I finally began to understand what he was saying. If you're a musical person, you're going to get it right away. Pop goes the music. Frank Garlock. Not garlic, but Garlock. But brothers and sisters, you and I right now are determining whether we're going to be saved or not. And if we're feeding our minds with the things of this world, the literature, the stuff of this world, we're feeding our minds with sin you know, junk in, you know, you are what you, and the same way goes with the mind. Does that make sense?
Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it's too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Now watch this. It's purity, holiness, and peace would be what? Torture. It would be hell to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might hide from the face of him who died to redeem them, to hide from love. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is what? Voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. And so no place was found for them. Where will you put them? And would you really allow them to continue living in a state of sin? That's horrible. You know, I think about this stuff. How many of you here have ever had to put down a pet? About eight of you. Now, I know the rest of you don't have immortal pets. So somebody put that pet down. Well, in my home, and I would imagine for most of you dads, that's our job. And um, I had a, we had a, when Swan and I were first married, our first child was a yellow lab named Brandy. And, um, and Brandy was just there through the opening years of our lives. And their chi- children came into the picture and they grew up with Brandy. Brandy was there before they were. And um, when Brandy was 13 years old, uh, she took a fall and uh, she was old now and she broke her back. And, uh, and it was evident what, I had, what, what had to happen next. And so I scooped up Brandy. Now, this is very meaningful to me because, you know, I have a dog right now named Rusty who worships the ground my wife walks on. It is, it is literally idolatry is what it is. It's, it's, really, it's, really, it's really cute. But in the back of my mind, I dread the day that dog dies. My, my, my wife is just really going to be broken over that. But... But see, that's what Brandy was for me. And so I put her in the back seat, and we went to the vet. And I can tell you, that was a long trip. And so we got there, and we got into the the room, and the lady confirmed, the the vet, that her back was broken. And, um, And that she would have to be put down, and I said, I... I understand. And, and then one of her assistants came to pick her up and take her to the, and was taking her to the back, and I started following her. And she says, no, no, you stay here, and I'll be back. And I said, when I'm done, I'll be back. I said, no, no, I want to be there. And she said, no, no, you stay. And, uh, and I said, no, no, no I'm, I'm going to go with you. She says, no, you, you stay here, and I'll bring you back. And I said, ma'am, where that dog goes, I'm going. So... She figured out that it was futile. So she brought the dog back, and then the vet came in. And as they gave her the shot, I held her little hand, her little face in my hand. I just told her what a good dog, how much I loved her as her life ebbed away. And it amazes me that in the, in the very end, God is not going to assign the destruction of the loss to someone else. 
It's his children. It's one thing when it's your pet. But God is going to be there. You with me? The note. During the third and final phase, the wicked are shown that they are lost and soon punished. The wicked are convinced. It is now safe to execute the sentence and bring an end to the rebellion. And it is at this point that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. You know, it amazes me, what kind of God is this? That it matters to him what you and I think. That in, that in the investigative judgment, he wants to make sure that all the angels are satisfied. What, is, what kind of God is this that during the thousand years, he brings the saints to be involved now in the process and he will not proceed until everyone is satisfied? God makes himself fully vulnerable to all. But then, he meets with the lost and he wants them to be fully satisfied too. What kind of a God is this? I'll tell you what kind. He's a God of love. Love wouldn't do anything other. Ezekiel 33:11 says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The note below that, the judgment is to ensure that everyone will be fully satisfied with the way that God has dealt with the rebellion. Now all are satisfied, and God is vindicated in the destruction of sin and sinners. The great controversy is over. You know, when this thing began in heaven, God already knew where this thing was going. He understood, but did everyone else? Satan accused God of being a manipulator and a controller. Satan told the universe, we're really not free. This law is a big drag. It is a burden on us, and it cannot be kept. So God had to let Lucifer play his hand so that everyone could be satisfied. And now they all see it was a lie. Great Controversy 670, God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness stand fully vindicated. God is love. And the result, name in 1-9, affliction shall not rise up the second time. The universe is now safe. It has been inoculated. Sin is dumb. It is rebellion against love. It is illogical. It is irrational. It is insanity. Conclusion, Desire of Ages, 57 and 58. The worshipers of self belong to Satan's kingdom. In their attitude towards Christ, all will show on which side they stood. By the way, it's their attitude, not their profession. It's the life. And thus everyone passes judgment on himself. In the day of final judgment, every soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. The cross will be presented, and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. Before the vision of Calvary with its mysterious victim, sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character. Men will see what their choices have been 
every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy will then be, have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of blame for the existence or the continuance of evil. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government, no cause for disaffection. When the thoughts of all hearts will be shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thy judgments are made manifest. Revelation 15, 3 and 4. And I didn't say the end. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that you and I have a part in this? We can expedite the coming of Jesus Christ by yielding to the Holy Spirit's appeal to obey God's law of love. And God has promised to work that in our lives. I, I can't share with you with any greater earnestness than I know how, but I am fully convinced that we are the generation that is going to witness the second coming. I believe, I believe now, the more research and studying that I am doing, that the latter rain is already falling. But it's falling in sprinkles, but it is intensifying around the world. And friend, as you and I allow the Holy Spirit, as we yield our lives to Him and allow Him to work in our lives, He will bring us forth more than conqueror. He will finish the work that He's begun in us. He'll work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Are you with me? It is His righteousness, not ours. It is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the person. I pray that, you, that we all will, will study this message We'll consider the books that Pastor Baute has recommended. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for making an incredible, infinite provision for each one of us. We are lost sinners, hopeless and helpless. There is nothing good in us. We cannot change ourselves, and you knew this. That's why you came to pay the price that we could never pay. That's why you have promised to bring to us the divine nature, as Peter said, the Holy Spirit. And as we make the choice to yield our, yield our life to you, to let you lead us, you have promised to transform us as we focus on you. By beholding, we become changed. Help us to realize that Satan knows this law too. And so he's doing everything he can to keep you out of our mind. Every excuse in the book, it's too early, I'm too busy. But we're not too busy to watch the movies of the world. Not too busy to read the books that talk about all kinds of sin and immorality. Not too busy to listen to music that talk about rebellion. But too busy to meet with you. Father, help us to realize we are sealing and closing our own probation by the choices we are making. We have no one else to blame but ourselves. But help us to remember, Lord, that you are a great deliverer. You're a greater sinner than we are. A, uh, you're a greater savior than we are a sinner. And you have promised that you will turn no one away who comes to you. Thank you, for, Lord, so much for risking so much, for offering so much in that one gift of Jesus Christ. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.